This is an Equity Mates Media podcast. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Get Started Investing, a production of Equity Mates Media. This series is everything you need to get started on your investing journey. You don't need a lot of brains in this business. Investing in yourself is the best thing you can do. Anything that improves your own Now time. you can get rich very young just by having an idea. I mean, I can buy anything I want, basically, but I can't buy time. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode. We love this time of year uh, in the lead up to the Sone Hearts and Minds Conference because some of the best investors in Australia, but importantly, some of the best investors from around the world come to Australia and pitch one of their best ideas or their yes. best idea, all for charity. And we're so lucky that we're joined by one of the speakers at this year's Sown Hearts and Minds Conference. It is our pleasure to welcome Ricky Sandler to Equity Mates. Ricky, welcome. Thank you. Nice to uh, nice to be here. Ricky is the founder, chief investment officer and chief executive officer of Eminence Capital. Ricky founded Eminence in 1999 and has grown it into a $5.7 billion asset manager. As Ren said, Ricky is speaking at the Hearts and Minds Conference on on the 18th of November. And if you're unaware of what Hearts and Minds is, it is one of the leading finance conferences here in Australia dedicated to supporting Australian medical research. Now, Ricky, we always, we got a lot to unpack here, but we always love to start these interviews with experts by hearing the story of their first investment. We generally find there's a good story or a good lesson that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, can you take us back? What was your first investment? So it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I, I guess uh, my, uh, my family, my father was in the investment business. He was a, a Goldman Sachs research analyst and an early hedge fund manager and uh, uh, started Arizona in 1982. So I, I guess I technically had some investments as a, as a teenager, but I wasn't really all that engaged. Um, and, and frankly, it, it wasn't until I, I wasn't exactly sure I was going to go into the investment business. And it wasn't until I actually did um, and uh, started managing uh, like a paper portfolio at at Mark Asset Management where I first started. That I I kind of really got the um, the essence of of kind of making investments, making mistakes. You know, things that like you picked on your own and and kind of completely. So um, 
there's there's a couple, but but I think maybe the one that um, was was most interesting to me was a company called Felcor uh, Lodging, and it was a when when REITs were just becoming uh, popular in the early '90s. Uh, so this must have been like 1992 um, or three. Um, uh, they were um, uh, a lodging REIT. I, I knew the lodging space pretty well, and and uh, um, it was a company that came public with. Six, they only owned six hotels. It was a pretty small company, but there was a really big opportunity to convert buy hotels and convert them to an embassy suites flag, which was sort of a better um, uh, uh, brand and and improved kind of returns on capital. And um, it was sort of one of the first ones I brought to 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 him on. Uh, to my boss and and sort of bought in my paper portfolio. There's so many investment stories over kind of having done this for for 30 years. I'm I'm, I'm not sure that you know any one is going to be some illuminating story. Um, other than like having you know always loving to discover things and loving kind of the the intellectual and kind of um, a scrappy pursuit of, of gaining a, a, an edge in investing. Mm. No, we, we love that about investing as well. The rabbit holes that it f- forces you down that you, if you weren't sort of in the game and, and passionate about it, you wouldn't find yourself going down. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's super exciting. So Ricky, before founding Eminence, you worked at uh, Mark Asset Management, which you mentioned and, and you co- co-founded Fusion Capital Management. Really interested to understand what have you learned over that period of time and and how was the market in the mid to late 1990s compared to today? Yeah, sure. Um, it's it's a great question. And there have definitely been some some really important formative things that have come out of my experiences. You know, I think working for Morris Market Mark Asset Management, he was a believer in deep research and owning great companies. Um, and and we've continued to, I've continued to t- take that to heart and, and thought that was um, terrific. Um, I think you know he was probably less valuation sensitive uh, than than I am, and I think that 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 you know work work for him, and and uh, you know he's he's a terrific investor, and I think for me, you know, I've talked about finding your own investing compass. Like I had a harder time squaring that, and so when we launched Fusion, quality and value were our two pillars um, of of what we wanted to buy, kind of good businesses at, at cheap prices, um, and then you know I think in in the Fusion years. Um, we had a we had a really good run, and and then in in 1998, um, the, the Russian debt crisis hit, and and the emerging markets crashed, and and there was kind of a growth scare, and and I think um, we had not uh, built a, a a very deep shorting practice. I think uh, we were probably spent 70 percent of our time on the long side, and and then would would short sort of similar companies or some some companies that we. Um, Understood to be more expensive and maybe less well positioned than what we were long, but but didn't build a single stock shorting practice. And I think the feeling when 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 the market was really under pressure and I didn't have the protection that I needed to to feel like I wanted to go on the offense was something that caused me when I when I launched Eminence to build um, single stock shorting um, into fifty percent of our time and build a core competency there and and really um, make that part of our strength is to have um, staying power and, and even offensive power amidst dislocation. And that's been one of the re- recurring things about cycles is, um, you know, you, you, you ultimately need to, to go on the offense at some point in every crisis. Um, and, and, and 
having that ability and conviction, not, not, not just conviction, the ability based on your portfolio. So, so single stock shorting was something that, that we, I really took away from the experience at Fusion that I wanted to do better and, and, and much more rigorously in eminence. And that's been a core part of, of what we've built over the last 23 years at eminence. Yeah. Just to, uh, just to follow on for retail investors um, who don't have the ability to short like institutions and, and like, uh, you know, large fund managers like yourself, how should we think about, you know, protecting and, and the, the defensive side in, in moments like, like now? Yeah, but, but it's, this is a great question and I think um, highlights an issue that shorting is, is hard and, and it's, it's, it requires diversification and scale um, and, and resources. And, and so I don't think it's easy for individual investors to, to, to do, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't practice it. Um, what I would say for individual investors is I think, I think the key is, um, you know, trying not to get caught up or overextended as in sort of a emotional euphoric type events um, and, and try not to get overly depressed in, in really um, kind of, tough times. Um, I think that an individual investor, hopefully, if he's got discipline, can be building some cash when things are frothy um, and, and can be deploying that cash when they're less frothy or, or maybe very, very fearful. Um, I think they can also use broad-based indexes to hedge parts of their portfolio at, at, at parts of the time if they're particularly worried. I don't think holding a 10, 20, 30% hedge against their portfolio and the S&P is taking a lot of risk and is probably protecting some, a lot. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that they constantly do that, but I'm suggesting that's a tool. In addition to building up some cash, I think, I think they can use uh, things like that to cushion the, the, the downsides. And, I, and obviously, um, you know, don't have more allocated to equities than, than is appropriate for, for where they are in their, in their life cycle. And, and money that they that they need in the next twelve months, um, and never use leverage. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think is kind of some, some some things I think individuals can do. Yeah, great advice. In preparing for this interview, I listened to your interview with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, and you spoke about how that period in the the late nineties really gave rise to the hedge fund, and and that the hedge funds excelled in that period, and then really up until two thousand and eight, they had like a real real golden moment. Um, and I guess, you know, that, that period started with a massive sell-off in high growth tech names and um, then hedge funds really emerged out of that. If, if we fast forward to 2022, we've sort of gone through a decade of active management, really having to work to keep up with a, an S&P 500 and a, an index that just is flying and pushed up by these massive tech names. And then we've seen a massive sell-off in high growth tech do you think this is a setup similar to the late 90s where active management is going to really shine through? I do. It, it depends on the type of active management. Obviously, if you're a growth manager and your your formative years and your learnings came from, you know, the post-GFC period and 2015 to 2019, you learned one thing. You learned that valuation didn't matter and buy the best companies and the fastest growing companies. And, you know, I think some managers haven't, haven't done so well, but I think the true stock pickers that have kind of valuation discipline and short selling skills have have and will continue to fare well both this year and um, and going forward. And I think it'll be um, a, a much better 
uh, environment and I think a good environment for the right type of active management and stock picking. Um, and, and so, you know, I think uh, it, you, you need to have independence. Um, you, you, you need to be not afraid to be alone and, and kind of wrong because I think that, that the challenge in investing is, is people tend to not like to be kind of alone and independent and, and, and different. And um, in order to do that, um, it, it takes good research that you can lean on um, and kind of, you know, holding your convictions. And I think um, uh, that type of disciplined investor is going to do quite well in this market. Mm. So, Ricky, um, focusing on your long positions, how, how would you define your investment philosophy? You like you mentioned quality and, and, and value, but if you were to drill down a bit on that, how do you define it? What I like to say is simplistically, and then I'll kind of dive in, simplistically, we want to buy ownable businesses that are mispriced stocks where we understand why the stocks are mispriced and we believe something over the next two to three years will change that mispricing. And let, let me drill into that a little bit for kind of sense. So ownable businesses, um, that means that um, it's a business which if you paid a fair price, you'd be happy to own for your family for the next five to 10 years because it's a business that will continue to um, be competitively in a good place, generate good cash flow, grow. Um, you know, you're not worried about major structural challenges. You're not worried about some exogenous macro event like a commodity type business. Um, so for us, it's um, businesses that have, you know, at least, you know, management teams that we trust, businesses that are in control of their own destiny, and businesses that, that over time um, should, should grow somewhere between moderately to very quickly. But um, the point of that, I think, is that when markets get really dislocated, um, you need a source of strong hand. And, and the ownable business point says, if all my investors left me, I'm left with this portfolio, I'm good. I, I, I feel good for me and my family and, and the, the employees here. Um, and so it, it turns out to be, uh, markets get very volatile for different reasons at different points in time and very dislocated. Um, and kind of leaning on that as an ultimate backstop um, is, very, is very important. Um, but um, I think, you know, different than others, we want to make sure we buy mispriced securities. Um, and I think a lot of other investors might like great businesses or fast growing businesses um, or, you know, low multiple businesses. Um, and, and I think that we say, I, I want to understand, um, I want to believe the stock is mispriced um, for, for what we believe it is and understand what that source of mispricing is. Sometimes it's um, uh, a little bit of a technical a factor or a macro reason why other people are selling it and, and you believe um, that that will work its way out. Sometimes it's a short-term problem in a, in a good company, but there's, there's some misperception or some reason people are selling it. Um, and then you, through your research and through your analysis, um, both understand um, you know, why that exists and, and believe that over a reasonable time horizon, that will change. And so over because it's an ownable business, it should be compounding value at a reasonable rate. And because it's mispriced, it should get revalued. And so over that two to three year period of time, we're hoping to make more like 50 to 100% in our stock because we'll get a couple of years of, of compounded value and then maybe a, a 30 to 50% revaluation. Um, and then if it is still a good company and it is um, 
fairly priced but not cheap, we'll probably move on and, and leave the compounding to somebody else and try to rotate that back into the next mispriced ownable business. Um, and, I, and I think that that, um, that you know, in, in a nutshell, kind of encompasses us. And, you know, as I, as I said, I, I love the best business that's growing the fastest at a really low multiple, but they never all exist. And if it did exist and I couldn't figure out, like, what was mispriced about it, I might not even buy it because I, I might not understand what could change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we are in the business of buying mispriced securities um, but among amongst a subset of of, of assets, yeah, I, I think that distinction between uh, like undervalued and mispriced is is really interesting. And uh, I know in a previous interview, uh, you explained with an example of a of a coffee company that um that you invested in, where it, it wasn't that you know that it was undervalued; it was that it was it was mispriced, and and that. I, I think really illustrated it. Can you can you share that example with us, and so it can really illustrate it to the audience? Sure. And I think that you know, undervalued is an opinion. It trades here. I think it's worth you know thirty percent more. It's my it's my opinion. I can give you a lot of finance theory. It should trade at this multiple, but you know, ultimately, you know, mispriced means that other investors are. Um, looking at it in a certain way, treating it in a certain way, um, and th- therefore pricing it in a certain way, which um, may be technically accurate today, but is not accurate over a, 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 a normalized horizon, um, and and and, I, and 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 that will change. So um, I think I think that's sort of the high level difference. And I think in in Green Mountain's case, um, which you know Green Mountain owned Keurig. Um, the the coffee company that that had the the they have the machines and the single serve pods, um, and it was a company that um, uh, had had a lot of different um, kind of messy things going on when we got involved. It had been a big growth stock that had come crashing down, um, and and there were a few things that were mispriced about how investors thought about it. Um, one of which was um, they were losing money. In, in trying to get into international markets and they were losing money trying to get into the cold business and they were going to make a machine that could could make a cold beverage much like the hot coffee beverage that the Keurig machines make. Um, and and the, the the market was valuing the company on, on its earnings. I, I think when we got invested, it was probably at a teens multiple of earnings. But um, if you took away the losses, it was probably trading at more like 10 times the core earnings, um, and and we would say they could shut those businesses down. They're not capitalizing those losses at 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 into the earnings. Is sort of saying those businesses have big negative value, and they might have some negative value, like they'll put some money into it before they make a decision or before it turns profit. But but one, the market was was um, not uh, uh, treating some of the money losing businesses independently. And then I think the other uh, issue was that um, the the company originally had a had a patent on the pod, um, and they had invested a ton, and, and that was going away. And they'd invested a ton in manufacturing, um, so that um, if companies weren't paying them a royalty, they would be the supplier. They could they could do a lot for all the other brands. Starbucks would come into the systems, and Nestle and all, all these other brands would come on. And I think people believed that the 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 profit per cup 
would go down a lot. And, and, and through our analysis, we understood that, that that was much more stable than people understood just looking at like the patents going away because of how they had invested in, in kind of the, um, the manufacturing scale. So they were the low cost producer of these. And so um, they could do this for you and make their profit per cup um, in, in a way that didn't necessarily rely on the royalty. So, so and, and that's why the market priced it at a lower multiple than it should be. And so there was, there was a lot of messy things going on at the time. We sometimes like, I wouldn't say messy situations implies um, that there are real issues, but messy financials where there's something obscuring what's really going on. Um, and through both our analysis and our research, we kind of can get to the right place um, and, and, and therefore um, have a different view. I think particularly in today's environment where quants and other people who are sort of scraping and using data um, and stocks trading on factors, we find one today where, um, you know, if a company is losing money, um, it is now in this unprofitable basket. And many of those companies will never be profitable. But quite a few are unprofitable today, but for good reason. And and so um, there are um, uh, things that in, in we often find when the financials look one way, but but we can understand the underlying health in a different way. So we know that will change. Um, uh, that could create an opportunity about why something's mispriced and, and what will change about it. Mm. So Ricky, let's turn to Growing Eminence, founded in, in 1999. And as we said at the top, it's now a $5.7 billion business. But we're interested to know how you think about the balance of being a, a great investor and then also building a great investment house. H- how do you think about that process? I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful question because I think that um, they're very different skill sets um, and, um, and, and oftentimes don't necessarily find themselves in the, in, in the same person. I think, um, being a great investor, you know, a lot of the things we've, we, we've talked about deep research, different, different point of view and, uh, and be willing to kind of be different than others and contrarian in, in, in some ways, not contrarian for contrarian sake, but, but making sure you have a point of difference. I, I'm sort of, I'm famous for, for, for saying, you know, if I have a macro view or some other view, it's not valuable if it's consensus. It's kind of priced in. So um, there, there, there's some elements about that. I think in, in growing a business, um, investing is a very lonely kind of insular kind of inner confidence. And, and you grow a business, you're attracting talent, you're nurturing talent, you're attracting investors. Um, you have to have a little bit of, of EQ and, and other things to, to sort of do that. And, and you know, there, were, there are things that I've had to learn along the way. I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a better version of my younger self, having been through um, different iterations and having started a small firm and, and ultimately growing it and, and doing things, you know, to kind of um, uh, building around your weaknesses as a um, as a human as a as an investor is a very important part of this business. Um, so, um, and I think maybe the last piece is like building a good culture, um, which you know is a kind of tagline. But I think we we take it to heart, and I think you want to create an environment where um, uh, the employees want to come in and do battle together. Um, they have. Um, they, they like the people, they respect the people around them. They, their biggest motivation for working hard is not that you're yelling at them. It's that they don't want to disappoint the people next to them because they know they're working hard. 
and, and that the shared team, we continue to make the individual better as an organization. So um, any, in theory, any one of my um, analysts or portfolio managers could go um, run a, a portfolio at a pod or at, at some other, you know, start his own firm. Um, but, you know, I like to think that our team makes them better. Um, I make them better. They make me better. And, and that kind of mentality and the culture, I think, is a little bit unique and I think is important to building something enduring and, and particularly in a business that's got so much volatility in capital and markets and um, in temperament and people um, that, uh, yeah, those, those are some of the, the – that the things and and I, I do think they're quite different skill sets as as you point out, um, and people um, who view themselves as as good investors and start businesses maybe often don't appreciate that. I'm not sure I appreciated that when I, when I did it when I was young, and I, I got the benefit of learning on the job. Mm. Oh, speaking of your team, so I, I believe you have a team of over 20 analysts now, and as you said, many of them could go and and run their own money. But I, I, I guess there's, it would be a real, you know, I, I'm just trying to imagine how I would do it. Um, it, w- it would be really difficult to teach a full team to, to invest and, you know, all that knowledge that you've built up through, you know, being in markets year after year, imparting that uh, to, to younger analysts. Uh, I guess, ha- how have you done it? What have you learned from doing it? And uh, any tips for Bryce and I as we try and learn to be better investors as well? Well, I, I, I think... Um uh, a, a couple things I, I would say. One is we've the team is a little bit unusual in 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 in, in its size um, based on how we're broken up. So so we have fifteen or sixteen analysts and portfolio managers that most people would consider sector based analysts and PMs. We have an additional three that are just short only because the short side requires a lot more resources. Your position sizes are small that they turn over more often. So you need more ideas, more horsepower on, on the short side. And then we, we have a team of about uh, seven or eight um, quantum data science people that are resources for me and the investment team. So it, it's a big team, but but it's a little more manageable when, when, when you think about it in that sense. And I, and I would say... Um, I like to hire, we've historically hired younger um, uh, analysts that maybe had two years of investment banking experience, maybe two years in private equity or something else, but not a lot of investing experience. I wanted them to have building blocks, but then we teach them how to invest our way and and, and they bring something different to, to, to the table. And ultimately through, you know, growing um, several people that way, um, as a team underneath me, and they kind of are, are training and working the analysts below them. Um, you're kind of, um, I, I, you know, I don't train a lot of the young analysts that we have now or any of them, to be honest, but they, they hear me speak in all of our sector meetings in in our research meetings. Um, and, and they're kind of getting the detail from the, the portfolio manager sector head that, that they work for. So, a little bit of trickle down. I think what I would say is I think that this business um, is more about the competitive spirit of figuring it out than being the smartest person in the room. You have to be smart enough, but that's not the highest bar in the world. Um, and, and you have to be um, hungry and humble and, and always learning. So there's a type of person that, that I think is, is the kind of person we want to hire. And then maybe another thing that I think we do a little bit differently than others is I'm a believer in working with and trying to lift up my underperformers 
rather than cutting them loose and moving on. If I think somebody has the capabilities um, and the right attitude, um, I'd much rather work on their weaknesses and make them better than get rid of them, spend the next, you know, six months finding the right person, another six months training them, another six months trusting them. And it's, it's, it's a lot of time. And, 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 and I think people don't appreciate that um, uh, as often. Um, we're in a performance-oriented business. So uh, it's easy to say, like, you're underperforming, you're out. We will more often take, for, for, for the right person with the right attitude and, and capabilities, we'll take the, the invest-in-them approach. Mm. No, it's great to hear how you're unpacking it because Alec and I are obviously growing a, a team ourselves and uh, yeah, it's just great to hear from other people who are building teams on on their, their own as well. Now, Ricky, before we jump into some of your top holdings, because we love to hear what our experts are investing in, we will take a quick break. But firstly, the exciting news for our Equity Mates community is that if you're unable to get down to the Sown Hearts and Minds conference in person, there is a virtual conference available for some of the selected sessions. Now, we've been able to twist the arm of the organizers of Sown Hearts and Minds. And we have a discount code for the AM community. It gives you 20% off the virtual ticket, bringing it to $400 a ticket, a large portion of which goes to a uh, uh, tax deductible donation uh, to Australian medical research, as we said at the top. Tickets can be purchased on their website. We'll put a link in the show notes. Use the code EquityMates2022, no space, and you'll get the chance uh, to listen to some of the amazing speakers of which uh, Ricky is one uh, from the Sewn Hearts and Minds Conference. Amazing initiative. So Ricky, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, uh, Ricky, we grabbed the uh, latest 13F for eminence and pulled out some of your top holdings and uh, really keen to dig into some of them. So, Ashland Global is the top holding according to the 13F. Talk us through it. What is Ashland holding? What's the thesis? And perhaps what's the bear case as well? So, um, Ashland Holdings um, is a uh, is a uh, specialty chemical slash additives company. Um, they make um, very fine um, uh, chemical um, compounds that go into consumer products, into life sciences, and into coatings. Um, so think about um, some chemical that would give shampoo its thickness or its smell um, or something that would give uh, food or a uh, another consumer product its its properties 
life science um, stuff that goes into pharma. So they, they will make some uh, products that go like into coatings or extended release. So they're not making the pharma product, but they're making some a property that makes the product better. It is and can be a fundamentally really good business because you're providing critical value to these products in terms of um, uh, features and functionality that, that their customers want. Um, it's a relatively low cost of the end product. So you tend to have reasonable pricing power. Um, and, um, and you work with your customers to get designed into R&D where they're developing the next toothpaste. And you're there with chemical compounds that help them make that toothpaste um, what it is um, and, and, and or the, the, the coating, so the thickness of a paint. Um, and, and so there's a whole, whole bunch of things, but that's, that's the business. Um, um, Ashland um, was a holding company for a really long time. Um, and uh, and over the over a number of years leading up to our investment, um, uh, had divested. So they were in um, they owned Valvoline, they owned a refining operation, and they were a big holding company. And they had, they they had done a lot of what I would say is the right capital allocation. Let's sell off a lot of business and get down to 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 to, to a good business. Um, and when when we came to the situation, um, they had. Uh, gotten down to um, kind of having sold the composites business, which, which was the last, what, what I'd say was less good business, and were running this additives business, um, but had run the, structured the company as a holding company. And so they had never had operational execution excellence. And, um, and, and so they were always, they were underperforming. So it was a good asset or a good industry or good potential, but the numbers, the growth rate, the margins were well below what we observed from a lot of other companies. And one of the things that, that we learned through studying this industry is it's a, I would say it's a business that can be a good business. It doesn't have to be a good business. You have to be close to your customer's R and D. You have to tie your R and D to theirs, um, uh, you, you you have to have great customer service. Um, you got to do a lot of things from an execution standpoint. Um, the old management team wasn't doing that. And so we um, invested behind um, a new CEO, um, Guillermo Novo, who's coming in and basically taking a good business that was run um, in a holding company structure poorly and running it significantly better. Um, and and that, was, that was the thesis. It continues to be the thesis. He has, he has made, you know, we are midway through. So not only has he made significant operating improvements and run the business better um, uh, and, and accelerating growth and lowering costs, he has shed their last um, more cyclical adhesives business. Um, and and he, has, he is doing um, tuck-in M&A that allows them to get new capabilities um, for their, for, and, and market presence for their kind of key chemical chains. Um, and, and, and what I would say is, um, um, some of the benefits of what he's doing um, are, are really yet to, to, to sort of play out. So when you restart the growth engine of a business like this, um, you're a couple of years in development. You think about the length of time for a farmer product or a consumer product. And so the new product um, introductions are just beginning to kick in. Growth is just accelerating. Um, margins have, have improved, but have a ways to go. Um, and it's a very underlevered balance sheet that they have um, uh, start to do the right things from capital allocation. So I would say this is a classic, um, uh, pretty good to great company. Um, and it was mispriced because it was priced as an underperforming 
company. Um, and, and we saw the catalyst for it to become um, a leading performer. Um, and, and I think we're midway through that, that transition. Love that. It's fascinating. <laughs> uh, that's the thing I love about investing, Ricky. Yeah. And, and I guess the privilege that Bryce and I have getting to speak to people like you, yeah. we just find out about companies that we would otherwise never know about. Ashland Global. Um, yeah. let, let's talk about uh, the Hearts and Minds Conference a little bit in general because, yeah. um, you know, it, it's something that uh, we, we think it's great. Um, but, you know, you're, you're coming in over from America to, to participate. That's uh, it's a big trip. Um, why is participating important to you? So I think um, a couple of things. We, you know, I'm a big believer in charity and giving back as a core value for those of us that have been incredibly, incredibly, incredibly fortunate. Um, and, and there are a number of conferences here, uh, Invest for Kids in Chicago, Sona in New York, where I've done similar things. And I've seen the incredible things that, that are done, um, the incredible amount of money um, and the way a community comes together um, to both, um, you know, kind of share kind of business insights, but also raise money for really important charities. And so um, when I came over to Australia, Recently, um, and I come over for uh, another reason. My my son's in school uh, in Sydney for the semester. I was uh, coming over and scheduling some business meetings, some potential investors, some people who know the market. I I had never spent much time there. Um, I was kind of blown away, to be honest, with the the community, um, the size of the the investment world over there, um, and and the people involved in in the, the Sun Conference. Um, uh, I had met with and and were really taken away by the forty million dollars in in a short time that they've raised. Um, very impressive and and so um, you know I, I think if I can come and I'm I'm a new speaker I'm someone that people haven't heard from um, and can help them build an interesting conference. Um, I think that's an amazing thing and I think the Australian market um, and the investor base in Australia is is one that has never really had access to us or we've really looked for. I mean technically they have access, but you know, we haven't really come and, and got to know them. And so my, my plan over the next, you know, year or two is to do a few more trips. And, and this seemed like a great way to, to get known and do something that was, you know, meaningful charitably with great people. So I'm really excited. Yeah, awesome. You'll have to come and check out Equity Mates HQ when you get here. Open invite. <laughs> great. <laughs> Ricky, the the experts that Sown Hearts and Minds get, uh, you know, have always have great track records, um, you know, s- certainly experts in their field and uh, investing with sort of time horizons of five years plus. So we're always interested to understand when you come and pitch and the stock that you're pitching sort of has a, a time frame of 12 months that it needs to perform. How do you actually think about that? And and what are you looking for in the next 12 months that's going to be the catalyst for, for a growth? You know, one of the things that, that I, I would say for, from, from our standpoint is we always take a long-term view, but but um, I like to say you plant seeds at different times and they sprout up at different times. And somehow, um, you know, we've had a portfolio that, that hasn't had, a, um, uh, at least on the long side, a major year of underperformance with, with the exception of, of, of 2010. Um, and, uh, and, and so um, I don't think you always have to try to make money in the, in the short term to make money consistently in the short term. That's a, there's a little bit of a um, 
difference, and this is one of my differences with, with, with other people, people are looking for near-term catalysts. Everybody's trying to make money now. People want to be in with a winner. They want to make money this month, this quarter. Um, one of our competitive advantages look over that. So, so, but somehow, because I don't buy every stock today and have to wait two years for it to work out. Some I bought a year ago and, and, and they're going to work this year. Some I bought this year and they'll work quickly. Some I bought two or three years ago and the thesis got delayed, but I still believed in it. And, and, and some I got wrong. So just kind of holistically. Um, so I think that um, if I look at the market today, um, what I've said is I think there are interesting ideas in, in some in every category. So I think the market has um, come to hate unprofitable companies, unprofitable tech, unprofitable growth. And for good reason. We had a lot of unprofitable companies with some crazy valuations that never made any sense that we didn't own. Um, but um, they, they will throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, and, and we have written about Uber in our letter recently as an example where the market has priced it like an unprofitable tech company. Um, and we think it is, it is just moving into profitability structurally. And, and, and that is the opportunity. So um, the market is um, mistreating a lot of companies like a lot. It is treating them all one way. I like to say that since November, all the unprofitable tech companies are down 70%. Some should be down 90 and we're short some of those. And some should have only been down 30 or, or 20 and, and have really good upside. Um, and, and so that's one. I think the market is very worried about cyclicality now. The economy is slowing. That's obvious. Um, and, and one of the things that, that we like to look at, it can be um, idiosyncratic names where um, there's something that will make this company on a micro basis stand out, but everyone's selling it for a big picture reason. So there are some other companies that, that I could think about pitching where um, I would call them a dirt cheap cyclical with a micro story that will significantly overwhelm the cyclical, which is largely priced in anyway. So everyone's worried about, you know, X and, and you know, there's a range of things that happen, but, but um, if X happens, the, it's priced for that and the idiosyncratic factor will drive out performance. And, and, and sometimes people overprice kind of what's obvious and in front of them, which, so, so that's kind of an, um, my view. And, 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 and I, we own some quality compounders that, that I like too. Um, Ashland would be more of a quality compounder. It's mispriced for a different reason. Um, so um, what, I, what I would say to you is um, uh, the market gives you different opportunities at different times um, based on how it is reacting to the world or what's, what's sort of working. And, and um, you know, COVID was a, a, a time like that where, um, you know, up until the election of the vaccine in 2020, everything that was a COVID loser or a value stock was shunned for the shiny growth. And, and there was a lot of opportunity in, in that, in, in kind of tacking against what the market was, I, I, I would say, like the flavor of the day. And this is where being a little bit contrarian um, helps us. Yeah, well, Ricky, you've got me very excited to hear your pitch on the 18th of November. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, what, what you do decide. Look, we, we are almost out of time and we do like to finish with the same final three questions. But before then, I just I, I want to ask you a general one about, I guess, the, the market as it stands in late October 2022. You know, inflation's still high, interest rates are rising, everyone's watching the Fed. Where, how do you think about that sort of macro picture, where we are in the economy? And I guess, 
or, or I guess, do you think about it at all? Yeah, I, I, we have to. Um, it's it's interesting. You know, fifteen or twenty years ago, I think we focused on individual stocks, and over the cycles and the GFC, and you know, we've had to become more macro aware, and now we have to become factor aware because of how the market the market has changed quite a lot in the fifteen years. And um, this is something I will actually talk about at the Sony conference as well. A little bit of big picture: how the market has, the structure has changed, who the players are, how they trade, how they think, what, and how securities get priced. I think that what I would say is, I think the market has it about right um, uh, with um, the risks and the issues. I, I think we are choppy to the sideways. Um, you want to fade the extremes. Um, so we had been, you know buying um, as of, you know, a week or two ago, and we had been selling uh, and reducing some exposure after this kind of big several-day rally that, that, that we've seen. Um, and, and I think after the kind of 20 to 25% decline, um, uh, there, there is more balance in the market. Um, and I would say that I think there's a little more downside skew than upside skew because reflexivity plays through and the markets and the economy are going one direction. And, and so there's a little bit of second order effects that, that will have to play out. Um, and, and so, um, but I think that people can, with all the negativity and, and we have been cautious this year, I think people can forget a few things um, like underneath the surface, a lot of stocks are down a lot and have priced in lower earnings and higher rates in a lot of places. Number two, institutional investors are broadly positioned very negatively. Sentiment is, is, is awful. Other than the retail investor who is still in the market, and, and that's, a, that's a factor on the other side, a lot of strategists are espousing negative views, so there's a lot of negative, negativity. Um, equities are um, nominal earnings vehicles. So we may go through a recession, um, but um, a lot of the recession models people have are recession in a, in, a, in a low interest rate, low inflation world where their earnings expectations may be worse than, than I think they'll be as companies are able to price for inflation. And there may be real earnings declines, but nominally they may grow. Um, and, and we invest in a nominal world. So, And then lastly, the U.S. private sector um, is pretty healthy. Consumer balance sheets, good. Bank balance sheets, great. Corporate balance sheets, decent. Um, people are well prepared for this. So um, I think we got to see a few more cards play out, but I think for the next year, um, uh, choppy, sideways, um, fade, the, fade the extremes, buy individual, a little more dispersion and, and individual companies. Um, and we'll have to see how, um, how sticky inflation is and what the Fed's reaction function. There are things we can't know. And, and, and to sit here and tell you, like, I know exactly how inflation is going to play out and then what the Fed's reaction function is going to be. I, I could give you a convicted opinion, but you know, I think anybody that tells you they know the answers to that um, would, would, would be um, only partly true. And there, there, there's a lot of research we can do, but actually predicting future inflation is one of the hardest things um, for anyone to do. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ricky, we have run out of time, but uh, the great news for our audience, if they do want to hear more from you, they can, uh, if they can make it down to Tasmania on the 18th of November, they can see you in person or they can uh, jump online and the, if they use the code EquityMates2022, they can buy an online ticket with a 20% discount. How good. But Ricky, let's jump into the final great. three questions. And the first one is, do you have any books that you consider must read? I have a 
few books that I think are important to read. Um, Good to Great um, by Jim Collins is a terrific kind of business strategy. I think The Art, the Art of Short Selling by Catherine Staley. Recently, um, uh, Titans was a book about the industrial companies. Uh, I believe Titans is the name um, uh, that I thought was an excellent, excellent book. I, I actually quite like more than um, books. I quite like um, interviews and writings of, of different investors um, as well. So all the Buffett letters, and, and I would encourage a lot of people to, to read and listen to people. Um, you can't be like any one person, but you can pick little bits of things from people that resonate with you and build your own investing compass. And I think that's maybe the most important part of, in, of, of being an investor um, because you got to have a conviction in what you do. And therefore, I don't want to be just like Warren Buffett. I don't want to be just like Stevie Cohen or David Tepper. But there are pieces of each one of them that I that I like. And 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 build your own compass is my yeah. Kind of view. I love that. Uh, the the book uh, the lessons from the Titans. Uh, I actually, it's funny you say that. I actually bought that. I haven't read it yet, but I, I bought it this week. So. Great minds think alike, I guess, Ricky. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very instructive um, in recent book, yeah. Uh, the, the second question, uh, forget valuation, forget investing in it today. We just love to understand what you think makes a company great. So based, just based on you know, what the company does who, and who runs it, what's the best company you've ever come across? It's probably either Marriott or Google. A little bit different uh, businesses, I think, you know, people probably really know Google, but let me just touch on Marriott for, for a second. I've covered this company for my entire kind of career. I, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I did some lodging back in the early 90s. So, um, uh, you know, the, the franchising business um, is one of the great businesses. You get to grow with other people's capital. You get kind of nominal pricing. You get super high, high returns and, and you bring a lot of advantages to the ecosystem um, through the franchising business. And, and that company um, has not only has those great business characteristics, but as a, as a, the Marriott's as a management team and the people that they've brought on um, early on, they separated out host Marriott, they, the, the, the real estate from the brands. And that was a brilliant, you know, very early prescient, kind of strategy. Um, and, and so they've done the right things on capital allocation and execution and, and keeping the quality of the brands great. So, so to your point, it was start with a good business, have good management that executes well and does good gap capital allocation. So that'd be one. And I, I think it'd be, you know, uh, it'd be hard to sort of knock Google, although maybe after last night's earnings, people are saying they're undisciplined um, in their, in their expenses and, um, I think I think they have um, been terrific in, in all those areas in capital allocation and execution, and they started with a fundamentally great business that builds the as the ecosystem gets bigger, they build their competitive advantages, and these sort of flywheels are are kind of important. Yeah, yeah, two two great businesses. We've had people answer Google before, but you're the first to answer Marriott, and and that's why we we love yeah. this question because we we always hear new new perspectives on it. But Ricky, final yep. question. Uh, if you think back to your younger self uh, buying, uh, was it Feltcore Lodging, Feltcore Lodging for uh, you know, your paper portfolio yep. early days, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would, give my, I would tell my younger self to nurture his network better 
at a very young age, I was given access to um, incredible CEOs, CFOs, um, uh, and and you know I asked good questions and I was thoughtful and I built a nice rapport and and I it probably took me till much later in life to realize that um, you know we don't get anywhere by ourselves and we learn a lot from other people and and, and drawing on other people's expertise and experiences um, and I think uh, you know doing that in a thoughtful way would have been a really helpful thing so that would that would be one. Um, and, and I think this notion, so so this notion of um, you know learning from your mistakes, but not necessarily um, in the immediate aftermath or in singularity. Um, and what I mean by that is a lot of people can lose money and say, let's not just do that again. Now, a right after you've lost the money, your perspective. Maybe the mistake you made was actually selling the stock there. And what is the what is the lesson? And then I like to string together. So I think I was like everybody else, like you draw these one-offs, but you string together the mistakes that you made. What are my tendencies? What what things? So so I think in in, in the mistake category, I would I would take a a little bit of time and, and build some perspective. So uh, that would be another one. And then I think the one that everyone always says is the the hard decisions, whether they're people-based or otherwise that you agonize over, um, they almost always feel great right afterwards and you agonize, wait, you know, make them, when you make a decision, move, move swiftly. Yeah. Three great pieces of advice to finish on there, Ricky. And thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us in the Equity Mates community. We're super excited to see you at Sown Hearts and Minds, such a great cause. And, um, you know, thank you for for uh, saying great things about Australia. Hopefully we can <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we can meet in person when you get here. <laughs> this has been uh, great. And appreciate the, the, question, the thoughtful questions and the good dialogue. No worries. Well, uh, good luck with the pitch and, uh, and and we look forward to catching up and uh, speaking again soon. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. You have been listening to an Equity Mates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 